Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. This week we were back in our beloved home venue of the Black Box in Belfast where it all started in 2011. The theme this week was Small World and we had nine amazing true stories. There are three of them on this podcast for you. A child was found physically fed, then statistically fed into the medical system. He and his wife have just moved back to Belfast, just up the road from me and Danny's granny. (laughs) Small world, eh? Just wait. No surprises there, the English not getting around in. So get ready for stories on the smallness of Ireland, the immensity of children, and the strength of bond between human and animal. Okay, let's get on with our first story, and he was at the 10 by 9 mic for the first time. Here's Brendan Green. My mother has a hierarchy of people with whom she likes me to maintain contact when I go abroad. At the top, redemptorist priests with bonus points for anyone who's preached at Clonard Novena. Second are any girls who graduated from the hallowed halls of St. Dominic's on the Lower Falls. That one's no hardship. And then finally, or then just any old Catholic cleric or missionary. And finally, good we Protestants, by which she means ministers who are ecumenically minded enough to have preached at Clonard Novena. Thus, when I moved to Korea to teach in the winter of 2006, I knew precisely no one, but was in possession of two important email addresses. The first belonged to a Filipino redemptorist who'd visited Clonard, but not preached, points off. (laughs) And the second was a former St. Dom's girl called Orla. Both very kindly invited me out for dinner my first weekend in country, but only Orla promised a night of bar hopping around Taiwan with her friends. So I took her up on her offer first. Of course, we spent the first 30 minutes making connections. Her mother worked with my cousin in the Belfast Trust. Her late brother and my big brother had acted together in high school productions of Pirates of Penzance and My Fair Lady. And I'd been at primary school with her cousin Liam. Orla's American boyfriend was more than a little bemused by this Irish practice of small worlding. Orla worked with Jody, a funny, sassy, well-read Canadian with a sharp tongue and a sharper wit. We got on like a house on fire and remained friends and travel buddies even after Orla had moved to Boston with her beau. Jody's grandmother was Scottish, which entitled her to a five-year visa to live and work in Britain. After a few years in Seoul, she moved to London, got a good job, established a friendship group, and spent five happy years contributing to society and adding to London's glorious melting pot of nationalities. We visited a lot, and she even came back to Ireland to be in our wedding. Towards the end of her fifth year, she reapplied for the visa to which she was entitled, and unusually for her, she made a mistake with her application, and it was rejected. No big deal, she thought, easily rectified. Not so. What she didn't realise was the clock was still counting down on her original visa, So by the time she'd resubmitted the corrected paperwork, her visa had expired. This was the era of one T. May's go-home vans. And Jodie found her pleas to the Home Office fell on deaf ears. Despite being gainfully employed from day one, 
never in trouble with the law, never a burden on the health service, but for an administrative error was denied a visa to which she was entitled. She appealed to her MP, she consulted an immigration lawyer, she blogged about it. Everyone was in agreement that this was ridiculous. However, her lawyer advised her that she had two options, self-deport and fight her case from abroad, or stay to fight but risk losing and be deported, which would prevent her from returning for 10 years. She gave her a 50-50 chance. Jodie chose to leave. She was heartbroken, as were we, but the Maybot ran through a field of wheat in celebration that night. Back to Seoul then, which under the circumstances didn't hold the same allure as before. She tried online dating, which was not going well, until she met Danny from Sainfield. <laughs> of course, I interrogated her about this character, and even from 5,000 miles away, quickly established that he lived in Sainfield now, but had actually grown up on the Ormo. In fact, Danny's granny still lived around the corner from where we'd, first, we'd just bought our first house in South Belfast. Small world, eh? Just wait. <laughs> Things got serious, and before I knew it, I was going back to Seoul, this time for a wedding. Jodie was happier than I'd ever seen her, and Danny was a great guy, even though he was from the Ormo and had never been to Clonard Novena. <laughs> People came from all over the world for the wedding, including an Aussie named Amy, who'd worked with Jodie in London, where she still lived. We headed off too, and when she told me she was visiting Belfast later that year, I said we must go for pints. When I got back from Seoul, I went to a beer festival with my old work colleagues. Knowing I'd been away, they asked about my trip back to Korea. And I'm telling them this happy tale about my Canadian friend who's deported from London and ends up falling in love with an Ormo man in Korea. I even mentioned the small world Danny's granny connection. At this point, Chris, a guy I carpooled with every day for four years, piped up. What's this Danny fella's last name? I told him. He rolled up his sleeve to show me an old, faded, but very long scar on his arm. I got that falling off the back of Danny's bike when we were eight. <laughs> we were best mates in primary school before he moved to Saintfield. I was straight on to the wedding WhatsApp group, which none of the guests had had the courage to exit yet, to tell them... Most Irish thing ever was the common reaction. A few months later, I get a text from Aussie Amy. True to her word, she's coming to Belfast with a group of friends and wants to go for pints. We meet in the sunflower. A bit like Jodie's wedding, Amy's travel group are from all over the world. And it turns out, I'm not Amy's only Irish mate. There's an Armagh man there called Barry who used to work with Amy in London. He and his wife have just moved back to Belfast and into a house just up the road from me and Danny's granny. <laughs> Small world, eh? Just wait. <laughs> Towards the end of the night, it occurs to Barry to ask Amy and I how we know each other. So between us, we tell Jodie's sad, deported, turned happy tale of love. And of course, I add in the fun details about Danny's granny and my carpool colleague, Chris. At which point, Barry's wife pipes up and says, Is that Danny such and such from Saintfield? I grew up across the street from him. His sister used to babysit me. <laughs> the look on Aussie Amy's face was priceless. I know what you're thinking, I said. You're thinking we've somehow had time to make this all up while you were at the bar. 
No, no, she replied, I totally accept that Ireland is the smallest country in the world and everyone knows everyone else. I'm just trying to decide if it's worth resurrecting the WhatsApp group to tell them. Come Samni Da. Definitely the most Irish story of the night so far. Definitely. Oh, it doesn't get more Irish than that. No way. Thanks so much, Brendan. What a great job for a first time. I hope we'll have you back soon. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. That is Apple Podcasts or Spotify, for example. We'd be very grateful. But it's more important, of course, that you sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, on to our next story, and he's a regular at the 10 by 9 mic, and on this podcast, here's Paul Hutchinson. In a dramatic act of love that some would later call a scandal, a young mother and father, both Burmese illegals, placed their daughter of one month on the steps of a hospital in Phuket, Thailand, hoping that someone inside the building might have food for her for they did not. The child was found physically fed, medically examined, then statistically fed into the medical system, then sent to an orphanage where she waited in her small world. Her small world where all the shoes and clothes are shared with the other orphans, where food is given routinely at the same time each day where staff smile at the children in their care, under the gaze of a picture on the wall of the King of Thailand in a suit, smiling at his citizens. The child is called Lucy. She is stateless. Seventeen months after this traumatic act of love involving parents and child, I am on a plane to Thailand with my wife and daughter. Joanne has been to Thailand before, having worked with a charity on alternatives to prostitutions for women in Bangkok. Alice is eight with pale skin and long blonde hair. I mention her appearance because in the non-tourist area of Thailand, which was our first destination, locals stopped, pointed at and took photographs of this pale beauty. One reached to touch her hair, but I moved in and intervened. Curiosity does not extend to touching my daughter's hair without permission on a hot street streaming with people stirring. We are going to meet the child who, in a dramatic act of love, was placed by her young parents on the steps of a hospital in Phuket, Thailand and who now lives in an orphanage in Hat Yai in the southeast region of Thailand. We have a single smudgy image of her. We know her age, that her birth parents were Burmese, who cannot be found, having been searched for by the state. And on our first meeting with Lucy, we find her in quite a state. She is the smallest, skinniest child in the bungalow where she lives. She has a forehead of scars and a look of fear and defiance 
when we try to come close. We have travelled far to get close. Ten other children search for our attention, crawl and run to me as I sit on the veranda. Lucy doesn't move. What has she been told? What could she be told that she could comprehend? You're going with these strange people. Goodbye. I am invited to lift her. I comply. She cries, no, screams. She struggles in my arms. The heat is intense. My shirt is wet with sweat and the tears of a child who wants to escape my attention. We have brought a gift, a teddy bear. She throws it away. It is a new world smell, a big world smell, a painful sensation for a small world sister. On our second meeting, Lucy headbutts my nose and I am stunned. We are told casually after this incident that she hits her head off things when upset. My nose hurts. My mind reels. My stomach is cut with fear. On our second meeting, we sign paperwork, are given her medication, are told to leave, told that leaving quickly is better for the child, told that we have to wait now in our hotel, told to wait for the adoption paperwork to be processed. We wait for three long weeks in a beautiful country. I want to cry every day. Take one incident on that 21-day marathon of endurance. We are trying to have a meal at a restaurant. Lucy is squiggling, trying to escape my embrace. Lucy is wailing loudly in my arms. Lucy is wetting my shoulder with her spit and tears. It is hard to concentrate on the menu. We are looking for comfort. What kind of food can ease this distress? We hope that the service is swift. Other people are watching. It feels like the whole restaurant is watching, watching a white man, a foreigner, wrestle with an Asian child. I have a small piece of paper in my pocket that officially says, we have not stolen this child. But this small piece of paper is no protection from a sea of eyes staring at a family in transition at a family in chaos, at a family at full stretch, having a nuclear family heart attack. Lucy does not care about what it says on the piece of paper. She is not interested in our legal status. She is in pain and distress and is making the world know this. The veranda of her small world has disappeared. Her only constant, an orphanage, has vanished.
A larger farm world is overwhelming her. Please stop. Please. We only want to eat a meal. Together. We are in a beautiful country with gorgeous food. But Lucy does not see a beautiful country with gorgeous food. She sees white foreign faces coming close to hold, touch, speak to her. She hears strange, unintelligible words coming from white foreign faces. She smells what we eat. Milk, tea, coffee. A stink to her senses, unfamiliar and alarming. She does not see herself in these people. Please stop crying. Please. We wonder if we should leave. We are trying to help. We are committing to loving and supporting this child for life. And right now, there is only tears, tantrums and resistance. Fear pushing away love, as fear often does. We are about to leave without ordering when a slim Thai waiter comes to our table and lifts Lucy out of my arms, smiling. Almost immediately, she stops crying. The waiter smiles and walks off with Lucy. The child that we have flown 6,000 miles to meet is disappearing from us in the arms of a man we have never met before. I'm about to run after him when he turns around in the restaurant and comes back toward us. As he comes close to our table, he smiles and says, You eat. Smiles and keeps on walking and carrying a settled Lucy. We have given up our child we can eat. We cannot yet fully look after our child. We need help. Someone else, a stranger, is better at looking after our child at this time. We are relieved and bereft, eased and distressed. And 18 months ago, in a dramatic act of love, a young mother and father placed their daughter of one month on the steps of a hospital, hoping that someone inside the building has food for their daughter, could look after their daughter more than they could at that time. A dramatic act of love. Wow, Paul, you've made us laugh so many times, but this was another level of brilliance. Thank you so much. It was an honour to listen to that. And if you think you can follow in Paul's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch through our website, that is 10by9.com. We are always, always looking for storytellers. Or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our third and final story this week. And it comes from Lydia Searle. I've always loved a meet-cute. A meet-cute is the moment in a film where two characters, destined to form a connection meet in a cute, unusual or charming way. Name any film and you can guarantee there's a meet cute shoved in there. 
Sleepless in Seattle with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks connecting over a late night radio show. 500 Days of Summer with Zoe Deschanel singing The Smiths in the Lift. My personal favourite is the scene in 101 Dalmatians where two hapless dog owners get tangled in each other's leads and you know the rest of the story. This summer I had my very own meet cute but not the one I would have expected. On the way to a friend's wedding in Donegal, I decided to stop off for two nights on Rathlin Island. After a weird and at times hard couple of years with some heartache thrown in, I needed the sea and some peace and quiet. With a population of less than 150 people, Rathlin promised me that. I arrived at the ferry terminal in Ballycastle with a bike I'd bought off a guy in East Belfast. Cars aren't really allowed on Rathlin, And the cars that locals use are untaxed and falling apart, some with literally no doors on them. So I was going to cycle on Rathlin. As I waited for the ferry, suddenly something cold and wet brushed my hand. There was a dog, a burnt orange coloured one with scraggly fur and big floppy ears, staring up at me. Everyone loves a dog story. (laughs) Staring up at me and nudging my hand. I bent down and it licked my face. That's Murphy. A woman standing above me smiled. Murphy's owner told me she lived on the island with her family. She gave me some advice on where to eat. The single food van did a good halloumi burger and confirmed that yes, there would in fact be no puffins at that time of year. I petted Murphy a few more times and told her about my family who own a a mad pack of lurchers. I'd always loved lurchers, greyhounds and whippets, and dogs with soft ears and big eyes. People pretend to like all dogs, but really, we have our favourites. Murphy and his owner boarded the boat, and I waved goodbye and went to sit upstairs on the open deck. When we arrived, I settled into my B&B and took in all the touristy sights by the harbour in about 30 minutes. The next day was scorching and I cycled the steep hills to the seabird centre, cursing my bike the whole way. On the way, the puffin bus carrying tourists flew past and I watched it longingly. It seemed misleading to call it the puffin bus when there weren't year-round puffins available. At the centre, already sunburnt, I walked down the hundreds of steps to the upside-down lighthouse, so cold because it's been built into the cliffs with the light at the bottom. As I'd been warned, there were no birds in sight, except for two boring seagulls, or as my sister always corrects me, they're just gulls, there's no such thing as seagulls, (laughs) circling round and round the rocks, never finding a spot to land. The RSPB volunteer told me that I'd just missed the pufflings launching, a time of year when all the baby puffins launch themselves into the sea head first to start their adult lives, and I'd have to come back next summer. Disappointed, I headed inside, where there was a replica room laid out like a real lighthouse keeper's bedroom from years before. A fraying yellow mac, a framed photo of a woman who was maybe the fictional lighthouse keeper's wife, a tiny Bible. Many of the men who came over from the mainland went on to meet and marry island women, a fact that didn't surprise me, because what else would there have been to do on a tiny island? There were grainy black and white photos of lighthouse keepers in Aran jumpers with thick moustaches, 
staring unsmiling into the camera as island women with stern faces carried glum-looking babies on their hips. I'd always liked a man in an Aaron jumper, so I didn't blame the women for being into them. <laughs> I read about how during the famine, islanders managed to survive in larger numbers by fishing and eating bird's eggs, taking the treacherous journey down the cliff edge with ropes tied around their waists. They always made sure to rotate where they, where they collected the eggs from so the birds didn't die out. Back at the B&B, I got invited to drink wine outside with some locals. Within five minutes, I was being given the island gossip. Whenever I meet new people, they always end up telling me their full life stories and sometimes their deepest secrets, even if I don't want to know. Some of the stuff I was told that night won't be repeated here, as the chances of someone in this room knowing who I am exactly talking about <laughs> are pretty likely, but let's just say... Rathlin would be a pretty interesting place to complete a sociological study or set a murder mystery. <laughs> Human behavior, but in miniature. As someone brought out a random bottle of Prosecco, I tried to buy a bottle of wine and was shot down, only for one of the party to yell, no surprises there, the English not getting around in. I heard... <laughs> I heard how a few years before, the posh English outdoor adventurer Ben Fogel had come to do a documentary on living an off-grid existence, and one of the group cackled as he told me, Ben filmed him building fires and collecting water as if he was off-grid, when actually he had veneers and a Netflix account and got Amazon deliveries sent over every few days on the ferry. <laughs> My head aching from all the wine, I went for a wander down to the harbour, and thought about my journey on to Donegal the next day, how many unexpected moments I'd had in 24 hours on such a tiny island, and how I felt calmer than I had in months. I really didn't want to leave. As I watched the sunset, I saw the woman from the ferry walking towards me, the loping orange dog by her side. She came over and said hi. I chatted about my day and scratched Murphy's ears. As we were saying goodbye, I said that I was thinking of getting a dog, especially as I would be moving into a new house to live on my own for the first time in my life, and maybe I'd have to get a lurcher after all. She turned back and said something so quietly I thought I'd misheard. Well, if you'd be interested, we're actually thinking of rehoming Murphy. I laughed, thinking she was joking. She went on to explain that, no, she was actually being serious, and because of some family circumstances, they'd been thinking for a while about having to sadly find a new home for him. They had taken him in as a favour for a friend who'd had to go into a care home the year before, and they loved him, but they just didn't have the time to give him what he needed. That whole day since meeting me on the ferry, she'd been thinking about how much I loved lurchers and how good I would be with Murphy. They wouldn't just want to give him to anyone. She asked me to think about it, and we swapped numbers. That night, I lay in bed thinking about the orange dog, my heart skipping a bit. But more than that, I was thinking about how sometimes when we aren't trying so hard to make things happen in life, life can happen to us. It wasn't really what I'd been looking for, but maybe it was what I needed. The next day, back on the ferry, I watched Rasslin get smaller behind me and tried not to boke over the side. I sent a text to the owner of the orange dog. I'm keen, let's talk again next week. Now that orange dog is mine. After owning Murphy for 10 days, I can confirm he is the gentlest giant I've ever met. He likes eating cubed cheese, getting his ears scratched a lot and taking up all the space on the sofa. 
but he's made friends with every shop owner on my street and he owns a snazzy collection of coats. But more than anything, he's a reminder that sometimes life throws you little sparks of something good when you're least expecting it. And our job isn't to overthink it, but just say yes. And maybe I'll get my 101 Dalmatians moment after all. Oh, Lydia, how gorgeous was that? I'll post the pic of Murphy on social media so others can see him. And I'm sure, Lydia, that you always buy your round. And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com and check out our website. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. And if you can, tell as many people as you can about 10by9 and the 10by9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10by9 happen. Margaret, Leanne and Chris, the gorgeous people of the Black Box, our wonderful audience and all our storytellers but especially Brendan Green, Paul Hutchinson and Lydia Searle. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.